Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Andrew Kitchell and Joe Freeman, the co-founders of Lyric, a startup short-term rental operator. Think of Airbnb for maybe the B2B versus the C2C market, if that nomenclature makes sense. This is my first one-on-two interview, maybe sometimes like watching a tennis match, but I think it was a great conversation. I asked the question what it was like to co-found and co-head an organization, and you will certainly get a sense of the dynamics of that type of business partnership in the conversation. This is not our first and not our last conversation with young innovators, since we're exploring both well-established companies and their leaders, as well as new business models on the podcast. Please enjoy today's interview, and if you like what you hear, Please rate us on iTunes, pass this on to your friends, and feel free to contact me at Matt at TerraSearch Partners with comments and ideas for the podcast. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Joe Freeman and Andrew Kitchell, um, I'm really pleased and excited to have you both uh, together here on Leading Voices. So thank you for joining me here in your office. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Matt. I will say, every time I go to a new economy, if that's the right word, office space, I feel so energized <laughs> as compared to anybody else's offices, and we're definitely here that way today. Great. I'm glad you feel that. Um, as quick background, Joe and Andrew are the co-founders of Lyric, which is a short-term rental operator. Um, think of Airbnb as a key comparison but rooms brought into the system only through blocks or floors of rooms leased from apartment companies, not leased from individuals. Is that probably a fair way to put it? Yeah. The other thing I'd say is um, it's also a highly curated, highly designed, professionally operated version of that inventory. Fair deal. So give me the headlines. We're going to kind of talk about your careers and how you got here and the startup of the business and where you're at in the life cycle. But give the headlines on, you describe better than me, what this is and how it's different than other things in the marketplace that we might think about. So when you think about the market today, there's the hotel companies, which have been around a long time Uh and obviously have a brand and and a product. Um, and that's great for certain types of usage, like you know, one night stay, etc. Then you've got the short-term rental players, right? Airbnb, HomeAway, Booking.com, now, etc. Um, the vast majority of inventory on those sites is operated by individuals, and so um, it is—it's very heterogeneous. Um, you can have great experiences there, but also you can have experiences that are not what you expected. And for a lot of travelers out there, especially professional travelers. They want to know that they're coming for a, a professional, reliable, consistent, very high-quality experience. And that's something that's very difficult to offer as a marketplace if you have no control over the supply. So with Lyric, we have total control over the supply. We choose the buildings. We master lease them. We do all the design. Our team operates them. And so much like with a high-end brand in the hotel space, a traveler that stays with us can know they're going to get exactly what they asked for, and it's going to be high-quality. And and you say you lease the buildings. Are you leasing typically floors in buildings? Are you typically leasing whole buildings? And are the owners of those buildings apartment owners? Are they condos? Are they hotels? What you know? Where do you get these? So today it's apartments. Um, we will we will lease either full floors or entire buildings. Um, and so yeah, we work with the with the ownership and management. Uh-huh. Of the apartments. And if you lease a floor, we're getting into details and I want to hear your story, but I still want to kind of get the big picture of this. If you lease a floor and I'm coming to this apartment building that's, say, owned by Camden or Avalon, the big 
big companies. Do I go in the same entrance as everybody else? Do I have the same experience going through the front door to get to your floor? How does that work? What's that look like, feel like? Uh, yes. So you you, you yes. come into the same entrance, use the same elevator, you have access to the same amenities. Um, we will have communicated to you your access instructions. Mm-hmm. So you'll know that, you know, the front door code is X and that you'll go in the elevator up to a certain floor and find a room and the, and the code to access that door is this. So you'll have all that up front. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you'll come into the building like a regular resident. The only thing I would, would add to that, uh, short-term rental operator, we're starting to see some patterns of stay that look a little different than hmm. what you might expect from from a hotel or short-term rental operator. And by that, I mean the, the longest a guest has ever stayed with Lyric is 214 nights and counting. In a row. In a row. Consecutive. Uh-huh. And we have plenty of people who stayed with us for 30 days or more. And yes, we have uh, leisure travelers, corporate travelers in that mix, but we've seen other interesting use cases such as we had one individual who recently stayed with us for 121 consecutive nights, and mm-hmm. she was remodeling her home. Mm-hmm. She, she thought it would be a three-month stay. She chose to stay with Lyric. The project ran long, and she extended her stay with us. So there, there are all these interesting use cases that have mm-hmm. emerged that are look a little different than kind of a short-term rental operator or just a pure travel experience. Right. And you're able to track what they are because the way the world is now. So you know who these people are. You know what they're – you may know why they're there. Sure. We've had conversations with them in many cases. So they write us. They, they, uh, we have very good details on who's staying with us, what they thought of their stay. When someone arrives, we have a check-in survey to make sure everything was exactly how they wanted it. So it's applying a hospitality layer to stay patterns that look different. So two, we don't do single night stays. We do two nights. We say two to 200 plus nights. Two to 200 plus. Got it. So let's come back to all this because I want to hear your stories. I want to hear how you got here as individuals, how you came together. And Joe, maybe you start, but tell us your story of how you came into real estate or this business or and, and into knowing Andrew. Uh, so I, I was born into a real estate family. Uh-huh. Uh, my father, grandfather have been re- in real estate their whole careers as well as almost every single person in my entire extended family. Oh, I'm sorry. And and, <laughs> and, and, and where, what, how is that? Just to make that a little bit real for uh, Boston area, mostly apartments and some commercial spaces. Okay, love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I grew up in the business. I, I actually was one of the few people in the family to not go into real estate. I went into software and then into finance. Uh-huh. Um, but after kind of, you know, getting tired of working in a hedge fund um, where I spent, you know, seven years, I left in 2011, moved west, wanted to get into technology. I started my first startup, which was a company called Tastemaker. We were part of uh, Y Combinator in 2012. Um, And that company was really designed to help individuals meet interior designers and work together online uh, faster, easier, cheaper than had been done in the past. Mm Mm-hmm. Great learning experience. We ended up not building a huge company there, but along the way, I met Andrew. Uh, he and I had a shared passion for uh, real estate tech and the ways that technology was going to change the real estate business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both believed that this thing that at the time was being called short-term rentals or alternative accommodations was really the beginning of something much, much larger that was not really well appreciated at the time. That's a good place to pause. Okay. Because Andrew, I want to hear your story. So, how did this come together? Sure. Um, my background is, is certainly different. I do not come from a real estate Thank family. Thank God. Okay, good. Right. Um, so I have uh, maybe a more traditional Silicon Valley 
route. I came to I came to San Francisco about ten years ago, uh-huh. and I was very from fo- where? Where did you grow up? I I actually biked down from Seattle. Biked down. I shipped I a box. Okay. I shipped a box of stuff down, uh-huh. <laughs> and I stayed with a friend. I didn't know I was going to stay here. I thought I was going to be here three months. Uh-huh. Uh, I was I was working a different job at the time, but I loved this area so much. I've stayed. <laughs> now I'm going on about 10, 11 years, whatever it may be. And uh, during that initial three month stay, I met some people who were critical and kind of everything that's unfolded in terms of my career in San Francisco, which uh, the two main events there were one, I was lucky to share a home with an individual who was in the second class or the first class of Y Combinator, mm-hmm. the same class that a, this crazy company called Airben Breakfast happened to be in. And we were probably one of the first hundred couches on Airbed and Breakfast. Wow. He, he came back and he said, there's this pretty cool idea. Not sure it's going to go anywhere, but let's take a look at it. So had been in the short-term rental category or kind of the kind of that peer-to-peer space, share economy space for uh, at least been involved in it for quite a long time. And uh, almost in conjunction with that experience, was very lucky to meet a, another entrepreneur named Eric Wu. He now runs Open Door. At uh-huh. the time, we worked on a company called Movity. And Movity. Movity was a real estate, uh, basically a data company that was looking at how to use uh, how to use data to improve individual home purchasing decisions. And we were acquired by Trulia. Uh-huh. And over the course of the 12 months that we worked together, uh, we realized that you could apply data and software to real estate decisions or to um, all aspects of the real estate stack uh-huh. in very interesting fashions. Uh-huh. Um, And the last part I'll share is that I've actually specifically been in the professional short-term rental category for about five years. Joe and I have been running this company for for three and a half years now. But before this, also was looking at it from a few other angles, using data and software to basically figure out how to professionalize the category. Uh And you'd been a couch for a while. Did that couch, you were one of the first hundred couches. I just have to quote you on that again because it was kind of- Way back. (laughs) I I applied- You're not still a couch, are you? I'm not currently a couch. Uh, uh-huh. Just the, the living situation has changed, and I wish I could have a couch, but I don't have one right now on Airbnb. Okay. And then what were those early things you did in the space, and then how did the two of you get together? Yep. So I was managing a short-term rental company, kind of a professional management company called Beyond Stays. Uh-huh. And I actually reached out to Joe at Tastemaker. We did not know each other and said, hey, we would like to use, we would like to come into these properties we're managing and improve the design and who better to reach out to than an interior design marketplace. Mm-hmm. And Joe and I met over lunch. Uh, I actually, I don't remember the restaurant, but I remember exactly where it was. And we had a great conversation. And I think we were both very interested in the other person's business. Mm-hmm. And through a series of uh, Joe wrapping up Tastemaker and me wrapping up the project I was working on, we got together and sat down and said, there's something here. Something here. What what we're seeing is not just, we didn't think what we were seeing was the rise of just peer-to-peer stays. We thought that was an aspect of a really interesting thing that was happening, which was uh, people, travelers in particular, were looking for unique accommodation options. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at places that had traditionally been on the long-term real estate market, so apartments or homes for short-term stays. Mm-hmm. And so Joe and I were talking about maybe the step-back view of what we were seeing was accommodations and residential real estate in some fashion starting to merge. Mm-hmm. And what happens when that when that transition takes place? And that's that's the, really what we've been pursuing for the last three and a half years is, is that thesis and thinking the world is going to look different. And what does it look like? It looks distributed. It looks personalized. It looks a little more seamless. And that's kind of what we designed Lyric to be. And when did that come together with professional owners of apartments? Maybe that's the defining characteristic here. Sure. So... We actually, when we began this journey, 
we looked at the space. We said, okay, if we're going to build a big business in this category, what's that going to look like and, and what do we need to do it? And since we're both software guys, we thought about like what software do we need to manage that kind of business? And we looked around and it didn't really exist. Um, there's similar types of software in the hotel category, of course, but it's a little different. And so we said, okay, first of all, we actually have to build the software we need to run this business in a high quality way at scale. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what we started with, was building the tools. We spent probably about a year on that. Um, everything from uh, statistical research to figure out how to forecast demand and new pricing to thinking around the operations we'd have to have, et cetera. So we spent about a year on uh, on software development and on, on R&D. So after about a year, we said, okay, we, th- we think we're ready to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw a lot of unknowns, right, around like, what does distributed operations of inventory like this right. look like? What does it take? And so when we started going into the real estate um, part of the business, uh, our first goal was really to learn, right? Mm-hmm. To learn like how would this work? What would kind of the, the challenges be? How would we solve them? Um, and so in the beginning, we actually did the hardest thing we could think of, which was we rented units all over the country. So our first 40 units were spread across uh, six or seven different markets. Now, it would have been way easier to do them all in one city that we lived in. Right. Um, but we thought that that would actually be uh, kind of shortcutting the, the the learnings we needed to have to build a big business. We said, okay, we're going to ultimately be distributed, and we're going to have to figure out how to run a distributed operation well. And so let's just start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent, you know, that's probably another uh, year, call it, on building that out, understanding the problems, and building the team and the technologies to operate that. Mm-hmm. Um that gets us to about um, about a year ago, right? But roughly spring of 2017, um, when we did our Series A, we said, okay, now we've learned enough here. We know what the next step is. The next step is to work with the institutional owners of real estate, of apartments specifically, and partner with them on their portfolios. Hang on a sec. So that, you're doing the things you just described. And the question I've been trying to get is, when did you turn to say this will work if we work with institutional owners? When did that uh-huh. Yeah, 13, 13 months ago. So the simple way to say it is when we closed our Series A, we had zero official partnerships with any of the NMHC top 50. Uh-huh. And we now have 14 active partnerships over the last 13 months that that have all that have all uh, been won by the real estate team. And uh, really by one, I mean, uh, what we needed to do was go solve the, the problems as the multifamily category sought as a professional operators or owner's and how much are you solving a problem for them and how much are you solving a problem for you? Or is this an equal, this fits a need for them as institutional owners and fits a need for you to grow this? Yes. So, and, and I'll, I'll give a little more context before answering that, which was uh, the initial conversations that we had, there was a lot of mistrust of the category mm-hmm. from, from the, own, the big property owners. They had heard the rumors about what happens on Airbnb properties. And so there was... Uh, what we needed to do was take the time to listen to them mm-hmm. to solve problems that they had, such as uh, we needed to build out a system to do background checks on our guests. Mm-hmm. We needed to have insurance policies in place so we could guarantee should something go wrong that we could take care of it. So we have a $10 million insurance policy. But we basically, we thought of Lyric partly as a product or a company that multifamily players would work with should we be able to solve their problems, which were they want, they were interested in what was taking place here. They saw the transition or the potential transition that was happening, right. but there wasn't yet a professional operator who had come in and said, we hear you and we want to work with you. So um, 
I think it's we found a way to work really well together where sure they solve a problem we have which is we want really high quality supply mm-hmm. where the, the amenity suite is on par with a hotel and they are interested in kind of new revenue streams and other 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 ways that we can be additive to whether it's the por- portfolio mm-hmm. or even the resident experience because they are now listing us as an amenity in some cases for the residents so residents now have a place where friends and family can come to stay and they've even started to find value in us as a conversion funnel so when they tour buildings, they will show our properties off to prospective residents, which is, uh, we did not expect that actually to happen. That's been a really interesting discovery. Right. But really, it took a long time to um, cross a trust gap of, uh-huh. yes, we can do this in an effective fashion, and uh-huh. our guests look a lot like your residents. So uh, so much to unpack in that. And in some ways, it's familiar, and in other ways, it's unfamiliar. So the unfamiliar part is, Airbnb, if you think about it, and the headlines, and I know Airbnb's formed partnerships with apartment companies, and they have models to make this work as well, but there's that's coming to them, and they say, God, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? Whether it's on purpose or whether our residents are going behind our back and doing it. So that, they have that on the one hand, but on the other hand, for a long, long period of time, they've had the Oakwoods of the world and corporate housing of the world as either their partners or they have their own internal corporate housing models. And you're more familiar that way because it's B2B, business to business as corporate housing. So you're kind of stepping into that place more than you are to the Airbnb place, or am I getting that wrong? I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it. I think that's, I think that's a fair way to view it. I would say, I would suggest that um, that kind of corporate rental product was probably always an afterthought mm-hmm. before in this category. And we're now talking to folks who um, they're coming to us with questions such as where should we build our next building or how many floors of short-term rentals should we have? Because they're starting to think about it not as an afterthought, but as a really strategic. A very strategic decision for them to make. So there's been a big shift. I would suggest that um, for a lot of I'll use the term millennials in particular, uh, the idea of moving into a place and having an 18-month rent and going out and buying all the furniture and doing design for the first time in your life doesn't sound very appealing. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a growing percentage of folks are looking at multifamily and saying, I'd move in, but I don't want to take care of all that. And we might be we might be an answer to that. We might open up, uh, we might give these folks an ability uh, for these different stay patterns or these different travel patterns. We might be a way for multifamily to develop relationships with the next generation of how like how the next generation will relate to residential So that's different than hospitality because that's almost service-enhanced normal apartments, but you're doing the service enhancing, and it's just a different way to lease. Well, I shared that there's a lot of different ways to look at what's happening. <laughs> I, I, I think it's we're, we're still learning every day about how, how others are coming to see our inventory type. Uh-huh. Right? If you had told me that we've now managed apartments, well, so we have managed places for about 600 nights, uh-huh. roughly, and we've had someone stay with us for more than a third of those nights. And if you had told me that that was going to happen, I would have said, no way. Why would anyone ever stay with us for 214 nights? But it's happening. So maybe what we're seeing again is this larger transition that's taking place. And uh, that's what kind of fascinates us. And we do think no matter what's happening, that the data, the software, and the operational layer to supply or to kind of support all these different use cases needs to be built. And that's probably the way to think about Lyric. Fair fair deal. Joe? No, I obviously agree with all that. I think the the temptation um, for certainly third parties looking at the category is to view what we're doing purely as a kind of hotel replacement product. Mm-hmm. And certainly that is a use case, right? We do get we do have right. people that stay with us instead of staying in a hotel. 
But the most interesting thing is we have the ability to serve all kinds of different types of customers and use cases. We've right. spoken about this a little bit already, right? Everything from the two-day leisure trip, the five-day business trip, the 30 to 90-day kind of either relocation or kind of home displacement, all the way to this much longer pattern where the person who came for 200-plus nights, he didn't book it all at once, right? Because he didn't have the certainty up front to know how long he was going to need it. It was like it was three weeks, then it was two more weeks, then it was another month, then it was another right. month after that. And so having that kind of flexibility that we're just a place people can live, Mm-hmm. With with no hassles, everything's taken care of, and it's 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 done really well. So, ultimately, we can serve any type of customer, but having the flexibility where if you don't know your plans in advance, we can help you. I think is something that hasn't really existed that we can now do. Makes total sense. Okay, so gosh, so, so many things to talk about. We're going to come back to capital because I'm curious about that. But I I walked into your experience room, is that or your prototype room, and I saw the sleep experience, which the rest of us would call a bed. Yes. So, <laughs> so <laughs> no, 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 is that it's what a you sleep call it, experience. Matt? <laughs> so, and and I have opinions about this because I stay at hotels, and as I told the person in there who must be the sleep experience manager or something that. You know, I have trouble sleeping in hotel rooms. They're too hot. They're too cold. The sheets are too thick. But talk about that this is a prototype, that you have, you're have. you trying to accomplish the best that this can be. I guess that's one way to say it. Totally right. So we think actually about every aspect of the customer journey as an experience, uh-huh. right? Everything from the way they book online to the arrival experience, the sleep experience. We have a coffee experience, a cocktail experience, et cetera. I like the and cocktail experience, yeah. I'll show you that after Okay, after thank you. <laughs> and the, the part of the reason we phrase it that way is just to help our own team think through, like, this isn't right. just a product. Like, someone's going to use this. And so for the sleep experience, you know, we have um, all of our kind of personas up that we think about, like, the short-term business traveler, the group that's traveling together, the long-term, et cetera. And, you know, you, you arrive late at night, you run a long flight, maybe you're a red eye. It should be this amazing thing. You come and you're so excited and happy to be there. Right. And so that conditions every, all the choices we make, right, around, you know, we get the the, the frate linens that are the designer linens that, that high, high-end hotels use, right? We have the Casper mattress that we feel like is the best product out there that we could offer. Uh-huh. Um, even the way the bed is made, which is obviously standardized across all of our products, all of our uh, properties, is designed to be inviting. So um, we have task lighting that's movable. So if you want to work in bed, you can do that. So there's all these design choices that one makes that you might think like, okay, well, it's just lamps, but they all tie together oh, to like, how, how is the person going to use this? Um, we have trays that slide over the bed so you can put your laptop there if you want. Um, and so every experience we have is designed around that. It's the functionality and the form together. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In hotel rooms, I don't know where they get these, but the plugs, when I put my phone in that has like five different cords sticking out of the thing so I could charge everything at night. Half of the plugs in the typical hotel room don't hold the charger in the plug because maybe it has big holes in the plug. Do do you know what I'm talking about? It's just, and there must be- Unfortunately, I do. There must be a technical word for that. And I have issues with ironing boards, but that's, there must be an ironing board experience. But you think about all of that. We do. I mean, we even have, so I'll give you another example. We put record players in all of our rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might say, well, God, when I'm on a business trip, do I really need a record player? And, right. you know, you could probably manage without it. Feels good. Yeah. But 
um, we put record players in each in each unit, and we have uh, the records we have, the vinyl we have in that market is from artists that are local to that market, right? So the cool. the, the records you're going to see in Philadelphia are very different than in Houston or New York or or New Orleans, whatever the case may be, uh-huh. because it's back to this experience thing that the hotel room or the corporate apartment that people have typically stayed in. They're kind of sterile. They're not it's the most generic thing in the world. They're not fun. They're, you're not happy to be there. And in fact, um, we know because we know people in the industry that hotel rooms are actually designed to make you want to leave because they want you to go down the bar and the restaurant and spend your money there versus staying in the in the unit. We're doing it the opposite way. We want you to be comfortable staying in the unit and, and want to hang out there and work there and be happy and feel inspired and creative. And so. We've we've invested in putting these elements into the room that might not otherwise be there to create that experience. Uh-huh. And it can be local, and local matters as well as the across the board. The art thing. is local. The coffee is local. The music is local. And one thing someone showed me is there like a photograph that the housekeepers take of the room when they're done the turn. That is internal software we've developed as well. Describe it. Sure. The tool we, we internally we call this tool tidy. But you can think of tidy as our eyes and ears on the ground to make sure that a place, a, a room has cle- has been completely cleaned and is ready for the next guest. Uh-huh. But I think anyone who has had any sort of hospitality experience would agree that probably the most important thing is that you walk into a clean space. And what we always have said and what we, we, we actually waited, we've, we've developed the operational capabilities to service Lyric over, over a long time. And we've actually waited to launch Lyric as a brand because our bar, our benchmark was, can we, can we prove that operationally we can service this inventory effectively a, a vast majority of the times? And right now, uh, our proof point for, yes, the brand, where we can go live as a brand that we can defend because we have the operational ability to do so, uh, was crossing a, a benchmark where our average review score right now is 4.88 Right, it's higher than well, wow. higher than the Ritz Carlton, New York City, for example. And part of the way we do that is folks walk into clean places. They're obviously beautifully designed, but um, yes, a Tidy is a app that allows our cleaning teams to take photographs to confirm that each room has been cleaned and is ready for the guests to check in. And it's part of the software stack that we developed in house to to make sure we could deliver great experiences every single day. So it's QC, even though you're not there. Eyes and ears on the ground. Isolators on the ground. Eventually, it'll be it'll be the same. The same tool will be used to guarantee that should you have ordered food ahead of time or groceries or whatever it may be, we can we can send you a photo before you arrive that is in the fridge waiting for you. Wow! And how much knowledge of your resident is too much knowledge, or let them know that you have too much knowledge? I've, the word creepy comes in comes to mind on this subject. I think among hotel people. That's a great question. That's the first time I've actually been asked that question. We don't interact with you like a hotel front desk, right? You mm-hmm. you are free to come and go as you please. You obviously have to, uh, you have kind of either uh, key code access or wh- whatever it may be. So uh, in some ways you have more privacy. And in some ways we, because of electronic locks, we know when people check into the rooms. But um, I, I don't think we're, I don't think we look much different than any normal hotel experience in terms of the creep factor. Maybe you could share more about what you were thinking. No, it's funny. I, I'll just tell you a funny story. I was on an airplane and I did something creepy. I'm sitting next to this guy and he's on his phone and his phone, he used RevPar as a term in an email to someone. And I, I wasn't being creepy. I wasn't trying to watch this guy, but I saw that word and I said, hey, what do you do? And so he's with, he was going to a city. I just have to be careful because to 
uh, on who he was, but he's with one of the major hotel chains, and he was about to accept a job as global head of strategy. And I said, whoa, what does that mean? And then I went into the like what I'm doing with you. So I would like interview this guy on the airplane. It was his worst nightmare. And we talked about technology. And I said, whoa, tell me about that. And he said, you know, there's you want to know some things and you want to let them know that you know some things. But if you let them know that you know other things, it's creepy. So you say enough to let them know what you know, but you don't let them know everything you know. That was a long explanation, but I think that defines creepy. I hear you. I think that's probably a product of the area we live in. I think it is. Right. Everyone has to figure it out. Everyone has to figure it out. I think on, and the trade-offs there are privacy versus personalization. Right. Right. That's right. And and service, right? If we can, if we can, because you give us permission um, to, to do so, offer you more personalized experience, or maybe you come in and before you even arrive at the room, you want to have it kind of personalized, whether it's the light or the heat or whatever. It's the records that are sitting it's there. The you records. got me the albums. It, I'm in Philadelphia. I know what I want to hear. Exactly. But. So personalization um, and kind of the ability to have seamless access to that personalized experience does come at the cost of we need to know what you want. Right. So it's an individual's choice to decide how to interact with a company like us or any company. But I, I think it's a good question. Joe, do you have any any thoughts? No, I, I think we always want to give our guests the opportunity to tell us about themselves, what they're looking for, uh, what they've liked or, or, or thought mm-hmm. we could improve on so that we can do that better next time. Um, one of the big things that we're working on on the technology side is enabling more personalization mm-hmm. so that, you know, because you'll, you'll book with us multiple times, hopefully, and you'll have a, you know, we'll have a profile for you like, like any other site. And so we want to know, like, you like your rooms at 67, someone else likes them at 72, right? right? Like you're lighting a certain way. Here's the seven grocery items that you always want to have. And if you tell us that stuff, we can make sure that when you walk in, that's there. Mm-hmm. If you prefer not to, we can do that as well. But mm-hmm. I really want to give each guest the option to, you know, disclose as much as they want. Yeah. The last thing I would share is I, I think Joe illustrated that fine line of there's some delight in personalization. And if there's too much, it might be creepy. Yep. And as a hospitality company, it is our job to understand how to strike that right balance. Yeah. Of personalizing the experience versus making you feel secure. Exactly right. That's exactly how we want you to feel in the room. And we recognize we live in a changing world. Uh-huh. And um, I think we're cognizant of it, but there, I, don't, I haven't heard of it simple answer yet to this question of data and privacy yet. I was at a boutique hotel last week in D.C., and then I was there two weeks before, and I kind of expected them to say, hey, welcome back. And and then I don't know if I wanted to say, welcome back, Matt, or welcome back, Mr. Sleppin. I probably wanted a Mr., given that dynamic, but I didn't get either. And it was, again, small hotel, and I was there twice in a row, and... and but that would have been a great touch. I would have actually got goosebumps because we're used to, you know, thumbs up on Facebook or Strava or whatever we do. Okay. So let's go. Let's We, we interrupted the, the growth story of your company because we were talking about money. And so Series A you started with and how you pick your investors, how you get money for this crazy, wacky idea. And then how that money and that crazy, wacky idea evolves into something real and maybe permanent and what that means. So maybe talk about the capital sourcing and both the start and then to optimize. Sure. So every time we've raised capital, uh, our goal has been not just to put capital into the company, but also to bring great investment partners around the business that can help to grow the company. Uh Right. And so um, in the last round, the Series A, um, we knew a couple things were going to be important, right? One, we knew we were going to need to work with people who could help us learn how to scale a, bu- a business. Mm-hmm. 
We wanted to bring uh, real estate expertise into the company. We had some. We wanted more. Uh, we thought brand was going to be super important. Mm -hmm. um, and also, we've been a data company since our beginning, but we wanted to double down on data. So those were all things that we really valued and wanted to bring people around that team that could help us do that. Mm -hmm. And we were fortunately uh, able to accomplish that with the folks we brought around. So NEA led the round. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the largest, most storied venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Uh, they, they know quite a lot about helping teams like us scale. Um, so they were a great partner. Um, Fifth Wall is a real estate tech-specific VC fund, um, actually based out of L.A., that's uh, the largest real estate tech fund in, in the U.S. We were fortunate to work with them. Um, they've got a ton of real estate expertise and connections, and they've been super helpful in helping us kind of build out that side of the business. Uh -huh. um, brand was super important. We were fortunate to work with Barry Sternlich, uh, you know, the founder of Starwood, and I think someone who knows quite a lot about, well, about hospitality, about, uh, hospitality and, real estate. and branding. Uh, <laughs> and apartments. And also owns a few apartments, too. So, so he's been uh, great to have on the team and great to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and we also worked with a team called Signalfire, um, which is uh, a, a newer VC fund, probably not quite as well known as, as NEA or Barry, um, but they are really a data-driven VC. Uh, and much like we're a full-stack company built around data and software, they're a full-stack VC built around data. And so um, they've been super additive there. So um, as we go into the Series B, we're thinking kind of the same way. We, we have a lot of things we'd love to, you know, double down on and bring more expertise around the table. And so we're going to be looking for uh, people can help us. Any, and anything to add in series, you get half of it's getting enough money and getting enough money to give enough legroom to keep rolling. Yes. And then the other part are those strategic alliances. Talk about what those strategic alliances bring, maybe more specifically, and I'm curious, and, and when you have, is, is Barry there in the room? And how does that Again, his knowledge of hospitality in particular, but how, how do they provide input and push? Or And how much of their goal is, I want to double, triple, quad, zillion times my, zillion X my money versus, okay, this strategic partner, and then how does it interact with our business? So a lot of questions at once. Well, I think those goals dovetail, right? Like obviously every investor out there needs to get a return. Um, but for someone that can actually play a strategic role in the business, they don't have to just sit back and, and hope that it works out. They can actually get involved and add value directly. So I, I do think those things are in harmony. Mm -hmm. um, as to what it looks like, I'll, uh, I'll use Fifth Wall as an example. Um, so their strategy has been to get large real estate companies across different sectors to invest in their fund. And then when they invest in us, they bring those relationships to bear. And so they've done that with us. And so a lot of the big relationships we have, um, you know, with, with Heinz or with Lennar or uh, LiveCore, plenty of these companies, uh, Fifth Wall was really the introduction to the senior teams at those companies. Mm -hmm. um, and they've both helped us meet the right people, uh, helped kind of educate the real estate investors they work with on, mm -hmm. on the emerging category and changes they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And it helped us kind of get deals there. Mm -hmm. So that's been a place where they have like directly, you know, kind of come on and almost played as an external BD team for us to help us broker these relationships. Right. Um, and then once we got the first, you know, three, four, five they've helped us with, we then can go out on our own and get the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth because we have the credibility of already having worked with the few that they've. And the relationship means an owner that you're going to lease space have yes. a deal with. I would just add to that. I think one of the things. Matt, we were talking about before this this interview was was the value of these folks who it's it's much more than capital, and we right. think we like to think of our investors as 
the people who are not in our office every single day, but are working extremely hard to create value. And the reality is any startup journey is a roller coaster and it's exciting and thrilling and terrifying at times. And you really want investors who they have to care about the business. They have to think when they invest in you, they have to say, I think in five years, I'm going to wake up in the morning and be excited about this business because they are putting in hours to work with us to build that, build this business as well. So it's very much a partnership. Uh, it's much more than capital. Joe and I have a saying in Startup Land, which is, it's not only what you know, it's who you know. Mm-hmm. It's who you can pick up the phone and call to say, hey, we're trying to figure out how to solve this. Do you know someone who's been through this before? How would you think about this? And uh, our investors fortunate to say there we are extremely lucky to work with folks who change the way we think about our business which is which is what you want um, right. you need outsiders to to change how you think about the thing that you're spending every single day on and and we're very lucky to have those folks around the table uh-huh. and how much does the thesis that you present to them evolve into places that are surprises and some investors may put their you know okay as long as we get our returns we're cool or you put their hands across their arms and say, wait a minute i thought it was a that and then others get excited and go oh wow that's really cool so right. talk about those different sure well in early stage investing the the calculus most investors are likely running is tell me about this team do they like the team mm. because really it's, it's it's joe and i sure we have a vision for what we want to create but we better be listening to because we weren't right on day one and we weren't right at one year in and we weren't right two years in. And even today, I would say the business continues to change almost more rapidly than ever. So mostly what investors are looking for, probably if they're great investors and supportive investors, are entrepreneurs who are trying to listen to and understand where the market's going and uh, that will adapt to changing demands because we live in a fast-paced world. Mm-hmm. And the business will inevitably evolve, will look much different after our Series B again. And um, I would just say... Uh, the investors who back you, they're they're hoping that you make the right decisions to guide a business to the right place to succeed. Mm-hmm. Talk about the two of you in relationship to them making that decision, both how you split up what you each do, but then also uh, how, why they bought you guys as those, those brilliant minds, which we've experienced so far in our conversation. But talk about that in a humble fashion, of course. No, of course. I, um, I mean, Andrew and I often joke that like, um, we just feel lucky that we get to do this, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's an amazing opportunity. We feel humbled that these people have trusted us with with so much capital, and and that the team that, that works here has trusted us enough to entrust their careers to us. Uh, I don't think we have all the answers, nor certainly we did not on day one. Um, but that's actually not what it's about. It's about um, having the the passion and the curiosity to say, hey, I believe there is something behind that mountain and we're going to hike that direction and we're going to learn things along the way and course correct. Right. Um, and I think that's what investors are looking for too. As Andrew said, they want a team they feel like is uh, is is hungry and smart and is going to make the right decisions and that is going after a space where there's promise, mm-hmm. right? Almost any you know successful company, startup that you look at, where they ended up is never where they started. Um, but... It's typically, you know, roughly in the same direction. And so if you have, if you're going after an idea that's big enough and you have a team that's committed and uh, and gets a little lucky along the way, mm-hmm. then then that's how success happens. Mm-hmm. Talk about your relationship, how you work together on this. And in the real estate world, it's more hierarchical. Maybe the tech and startup world, because you're all running it together, it's something so fast with so much change that it becomes less hierarchical than, hey, we're putting our heads together today. We're putting our heads together today. What's, what's that look and feel like? Well, the the truth of it is, we're we're a real estate company and a tech company, 
at the same time. Right. You know, and so the the scope of things that our organization does is is pretty vast for a company of our size, right? So we have everything from you know, we design and build our own software. We have a brand that we're building. We have a whole supply chain that we have to manage. We have a vast operations business or, you know, a, a division that handles everything from setting up new units to mm-hmm. managing existing units. We have real estate. We have finance. We have revenue. We have, of course, people. So um, there's just a lot of stuff that we have um, committed to do, a lot of different mm-hmm. problems we've committed to solve, which we think is important. And I, I just think it'd be hard to do it on your own, right? So yeah, more fun uh, to do it together. Yeah, so you know, we're we're a team. I mean, I handle uh, the kind of you know real estate, finance, revenue, operations type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew is product, engineering, brand, people. Um, and if you look at our backgrounds and how we each got here in our careers, we both gravitated towards things that we um, have done in the past and found success with and are passionate about. And I think that's really why we're a great team is we have very complementary skill sets and we're happy to defer to the other you know at the right time. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I would I would not recommend starting a business alone. You want someone who is uh, with Joe. We've worked together for three and a half years. Uh, I would say we've taught each other a lot. It hasn't always been easy. We spend a lot of time working on our relationship, on our communication, uh, because our business is so complex. Um, and, and not saying that other than the diversity of things we have to do on a daily basis. We need to have people who uh, really understand the North Star of the business kind of from the bottom of their soul mm-hmm. and are able to go out and uh, work with different divisions to make to make sure things happen well. So I think of Joe, uh, working with Joe, is we kind of, uh, we both have enough context to run any aspect of the org. Mm-hmm. And we both have, when we have a critical decision to make, we both have enough context to be able to sit down with each other, debate it, make a decision, and move on. Whereas I think if I was working alone, I might have lingering questions or doubts, but having that second person, that certainty that comes from, yep, this is the right move, allows us to move really fast. And I think what uh, our team, uh, what we pride ourselves on probably more than anything is moving quickly, testing things, rapid iteration, and trying Mm -hmm. to solve problems. And uh, that that is easier when you're working with someone who uh, seems to have at least a framework for making decisions that's similar to yours. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have. I think the success of that relationship must be a huge component of being able to make that work. It absolutely is. And you probably have to work on it. You probably have spats. Never. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Uh, Yep. But we uh, we have a habit of when our worst spats happen, we usually hug it out before leaving the room. We we don't have fights. It's like, you know, it's like a relationship. Of course. You don't have, you do not have fights that last a day. I think I wouldn't want to work in an environment or with a co-founder who didn't challenge me at certain times. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure Joe would say the same way. And it's not always easy, but it is really fun. Congratulations. I'm I'm jealous of that because that's what you want in business. It's a great thing. Talk about the effect of regulation on this. And one of the reasons I'm curious, we, we in our business, we do a lot of work with housing providers and housing is hard to get right now. There's a shortage. And so let's pretend it's San Francisco or another supply constrained city. And in that supply constrained city, um, here's someone got entitled 200 rental units and now you're taking... 20 of them and you're putting them into short-term stay. Uh-oh. How does that work? Uh, well, we don't operate in San Francisco today, so we don't, ha- we don't have that specific <laughs> But there's issue. other places like this here. Uh, so. I'd say at the highest level, we made a decision early on that regulation was going to be something that we took very seriously and that we would invest the time, energy, and money to be 100% compliant. Mm-hmm. And that is actually not 
always the norm in the startup world, right? There's there's lots of uh, companies that have grown in regulated industries and have kind of ignored regulations and kind of um, tussled with regulators after the fact. Mm-hmm. We made a decision early on that we're not going to do that, mm-hmm. that we believe um, for the big long-term win here, we've got to take this stuff seriously. We don't want to be perceived as bad people in the community. Um and we don't want to, you know, make investments with the company's time and resources that will then be undone because we we did not understand the regulations. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's somewhat somewhat of a unique approach that we we do. And so every market we're in, we're one hundred percent compliant. Um, we have regulatory experts both on staff. And we work with third party regulatory experts in most of the markets we're in, as well as at a national level. Uh-huh. That said, our our kind of synthesis of the regulatory picture for STRs mm-hmm. is that. It's usually a lot more nuanced than the headlines would suggest, right? So there's plenty of markets out there where you've seen headlines saying, oh, short-term rentals banned in Austin or Nashville or you you name it. Um, and if you dig in, you really find like, okay, well, sure, that's for single-family homes and residential areas. But if you're in a commercial area or a mixed-use building or there's typically some way you can operate, our approach is we just work directly with the regulators. We, we you know – Visit the city offices, the permitting offices, the city attorneys, et cetera, say, hey, here's what we want to do. Um, help us understand how we can do this in a way that's compliant and make sure that you know it's, it's all about board. Mm-hmm. The thing I would add is the regulations are obviously a response to public opinion about right. housing supply. Mm-hmm. And it's not something we're naive to, and you couldn't be naive to it in San Francisco. Right. It's something we hear about a lot. And as Joe mentioned, we don't operate here. And... Um, the reason is regulation. But I think there's a larger question about housing supply. And the two things, and I will apologize in advance if these sound kind of uh, whitewashed, but the two ways I would suggest thinking about this is, one, um, we do, especially when we move into a new building that is in lease-up, we help that building more quickly achieve 100% occupancy. And theoretically, we can help that company return their investment more quickly and create more supply. Mm -hmm. So that would be part one. Part two would be, I think regulation most likely looks like um, a response and probably probably a misunderstanding of the scale of change that is taking place. Again, I think the step back view of what we're seeing here is a shift in how people relate to residential real estate. Right. I do not think the idea of people moving into or signing an 18-month lease and moving into an unfurnished spot is going to exist in 10 years. And I think cities are responding right now to changing patterns, and, and patterns of how people live and travel are only going, or the, the rate of change there is only going to accelerate as interesting technologies such as self-driving cars come online. But I, again, think the larger narrative here is a changing relationship that we all have to the places we live and stay. And regulation in the short term might kind of overcorrect around that, but in the long term, I think we'll probably see policies that come into place that just help create more supply. Um, that's that's my opinion. I think the more supply is the answer. The question is because regulation is a lagging indicator of what public opinion one's done, that a problem yes. has been created and a problem has been there for a while in order to be a problem. And short-term rental regulation is a different issue than, gosh, we don't have enough housing supply. How do we cause more housing supply? Which and, and then changing patterns may ultimately change what the problem of housing supply looks like. That may be 10 years out, though, mm. just like we're not going to need garages in 10 years, but we do today. Um, so if there's still there's a housing shortage issue different than a short-term rental. How do we feel about it? Right, right. I would, I would agree with that. And I think it's really interesting for us to kind of stay aware of it and, and mm-hmm. think about it. And we, we recognize 
public sentiment. But yeah, I would say right now we might think about regulation and, and even the public response to inventory like ours a little differently. Yeah, fair deal. And so play this out. Let's think of your business in 10 years. What's it What's it look like? You've you achieve success. You're, you're, the model's proven out. You have some scale, meaningful scale. What what does that look like? Is it just here? Is it globally? Play that out a little bit. It's definitely globally. Um, uh-huh. it, it's not only the U.S. People want to live and travel and have these great experiences when they do so. Um, so we'd like to be in every you know major travel city in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at the big hotel chains, Marriott's got a million rooms. Um, there's plenty of other hotel chains that have you know half a million or, or thereabouts. So, you know, for us to have, call it 100,000, that would not make us a, a, a large, large player in in, um, in the accommodations category. But we think right. it's certainly something that's achievable. So we, we want to operate at that scale. We want to grow and operate at that scale all over the world. We want to have a brand that is, that is you know, known and beloved everywhere. Um, and, we you know, we want to keep iterating and getting better at what we do because we think we're only in the in the very beginning of this journey. What are we missing in this conversation about your business that you might want to tell us? I think the biggest thing that we see, um, because, again, I'll, I'll kind of return to where the conversation started. Right. A lot of people say, oh, so you guys are like a professional Airbnb. I get it. And we want to say, well, n- no, actually, that's that's not really what we're after. I mean, yes, if you look at the inventory, there you know there's some kind of similarities. But um, we're not doing this because we feel like... The world, you know, the world is perfect the way it is. It just needs a more professional version of Airbnb. Our goal is to serve the needs of the world as it's changing. And what we see is people want to live and travel in a more flexible, more experience-driven way. They don't want to be as tied down. Um, and there isn't really an option for them to do that, right? So some of the anecdotes we've presented today around, a th- you know, a quarter to a third of applicants of new apartment buildings don't want to sign a 12-month unfurnished lease. They want, like, something less than that that's furnished, all the way to the stay patterns we're seeing. Um, all these things point in the same direction, which is the world is changing. The way people live and travel is going to merge. There's not going to be this notion of, like, you either have a hotel or an apartment. There's going to be this kind of flexible lifestyle you know, paradigm that emerges, and mm-hmm. we don't feel like the inventory to service that exists, and so that's what we're building. Mm-hmm. First of all, I love that question. I had some time to think while, while Joe, you were talking, and <laughs> what, what, one of the nice things is you you asked us a range of questions that that did hit on a lot of things, whether it's the data, the uh-huh. software, the operations, the guest questions, etc. I would say something you missed. Uh, we're hiring. Great folks. <laughs> well, talk to us about that. Okay, great. Yes, we, um, we're we always, we have a, a really fun team of about 80 folks right now in, in San Francisco. Uh, you came to our office today. Thank you for coming. And it's, it's a fun place to work. We believe that uh, kind of the, the internal quotes here, our teamwork makes a dream work and empower together. We love this idea that uh, when we first started this company, people said, you can't build a hospitality company and a data science company at the same time. And our response was in five years, there's no way you can start a hospitality company without actually starting with data and software. So we um, we love kind of existing in this world where our success is in blending together everything from PhD data scientists to architects to everything else in between. It's a really fun journey. You, it's a kind of a platform for learning unlike I've ever had. And we always are looking to add more great folks around the table who can uh, who are excited about the opportunity and might want to hop aboard for a really fun ride. So Lily Wang, who's the producer of the podcast, is here in the room today. This is her first time in the room for the podcast. And I'm going to give her the microphone because she has a question for you guys, too. Well, this was lingering in my mind. So for folks who 
are moving into San Francisco and finding it hard to find apartments, is this a workaround? If they have low credit, they can't compete with, you know, having the income. Is this? Sure. So basically, is it a relocation potential option? Maybe as you find your permanent place to stay? Is that is that your question? That or just a permanent place to stay? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I think uh, the short answer is it definitely could be. We see that pattern of 240 or 214 consecutive nights. I think other teams who are looking at um, real estate, even teams like we, we've talked to the team at Zillow who thinks Airbnb might be a really interesting competitor because people might choose to stay at an Airbnb for two weeks before choosing where to stay. So um, are we an alternative uh, to that uh, might unlock some possibilities for folks potentially? Um, Joe, what would you think about that? I think I think the biggest thing that uh, we or, or someone you know a similar category would offer is um, is, is flexibility, and so um, for a lot of folks coming to SF, you know I know when I first moved here, I didn't know the city, I didn't really know where I wanted to live, I wasn't a hundred percent sure I was going to stay here long term, and so I I had to um, I actually stayed in a now that I think about it, I stayed in a corporate apartment for like six weeks that was not that great, but I I did it because I wasn't prepared to to like make the commitment to rent an apartment. So I think for folks that are in a transitionary state like that, I think it's absolutely a great option. I know a lot of people who have uh, moved either for work or personal reasons and have gone out and either long-term rented or bought a home right away, only to find you know a short time later that they wish they would have lived in a different part of the city or in a different size home or whatever. And so I think with, with someone like us, we can help people land, feel like they're part of the community, learn the town a little more before they decide what their long-term options going to be. That works. This is always my last question, um, and may, maybe from each of you separately, but if you had advice to someone getting into the business or getting into their business career, uh, what would that advice be? That's a great question. I, I guess I have a couple pieces of advice. Um, uh-huh. One, you're likely going to be doing it a long time, or hopefully, so make sure it's something you believe deeply in, and the people you have chosen to embark on the journey with are people that you really want to spend a long time working with. Um, I think that's one. And the only other thing I'd add is just, uh, you know, go for it. It's funny. You mentioned early in the in this podcast that Joe and I are relatively early in our careers. Uh-huh. And we are. And the people you talk to, it sounds like they've run a number of companies. But Joe and I have also both run a number of companies. You've never heard of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but those those failures were so essential. Yep. The percentage of folks who get it right the first time are in, it's an incredibly small percentage, and we uh-huh. all know their names. But most of us have to go through the battles of trying to learn what it takes to build a business. Uh-huh. And it takes a whole lot. It takes a team and luck and an investment network that can help you actually get to the place you, that we're at today. So there's so many variables mm-hmm. that you don't learn until you do it. So like Joe said, go for it. And when it doesn't work out, go for it again uh-huh. and probably again and again uh-huh. and then maybe you'll get so lucky as to have a fun chance to build something cool fair deal gentlemen this is a great conversation thank you very much thank you so much it's been a pleasure I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices if you like the episode please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and feel free to comment via our website leadingvoicespodcast.com or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.